Hey, everybody. Everybody good? Uh, you look great. You sound great. Um, so Pastor Doug is um, at currently at a Grand, uh, Calvary uh, Baptist Church in Grand Prairie, um, filling in for our friend Brian Loveless. Um, and so he asked me a few weeks ago uh, to have the uh, honor and privilege to, to ring us into the new year, first Sunday together as a family, um, and just kind of dive in together. Uh, and so I'm excited to dive in. So I'm going to take us to First uh, Samuel uh, chapter 20. Uh, so if you have a Bible or electronic device, uh, you can uh, flip there, or there's one in front of you, or there's these awesome uh, electronic ones up on the screen for your viewing pleasure as well. So First Samuel chapter 20. I'm going to start in verse 1. David now fled to Naoth and Ramah and found Jonathan. What have I done? He exclaimed. What is my crime? How have I offended your father that he is so determined to kill me? That's not true, Jonathan protested. You're not going to die. He always tells me everything he's going to do, even the little things. I know my father wouldn't hide something like this from me. It just isn't so. Verse 3. Then David took an oath before Jonathan and said, your father knows perfectly well about our friendship. So he has said to himself, I won't tell Jonathan. Why should I hurt him? But I swear to you, I'm I'm only a step away from death. I swear it by the Lord and by my own soul. Tell me what I can do to help you, Jonathan exclaimed. David replied, tomorrow we celebrate the new moon festival, and I've always eaten with the king on this occasion. But tomorrow I'll hide in the field and stay there until the evening of the third day. If your father asks where I am, tell him I asked permission to go to Bethlehem for an annual family sacrifice. And if he says, fine, you know all is well. But if he is angry and loses his temper, you will know he is determined to kill me. Show me this loyalty as my sworn friend, for we have made a solemn pact before the Lord Kill me yourself if I've sinned against your father. But please, don't betray me to him. Never, Jonathan exclaimed. You know that if I had the slightest notion my father was planning to kill you, I'd tell you at once. I'm going to skip down to verse 42 of the same chapter. So uh, 1 Samuel 20, verse 42 says this. At last, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left, and Jonathan returned to the town. Can I pray for us? Uh, Jesus, we just, um, we ask that right now, God, that this room would be emptied of any words, um, any distractions, anything that might take us and pull us away from your words. Um, Jesus, I can read a few words off a piece of paper or, Maybe find something inspirational to say, but it absolutely will mean nothing if, if your power doesn't move. Um, Jesus, we want only your words, only your will um, to be spoken in this place. And we ask that you do what you set out to do from the beginning of the world um, here. We love you. In your name, amen. Um, so my wife and I are currently in a uh, kind of a stage of parenting, and some of you guys may have experienced uh, this stage as well, um, where our kids are way less easy to keep contained. Uh, maybe you guys are, are in that thing. Uh, we've had Cohen for a while. He's, he's going to be five, and so he's been pretty mobile, uh, pretty quick on his feet for, for quite a while. Uh, but, but Artie, um, really, we kind of are just getting out of that really enjoy, enjoyable stage where you can set her little, like, tubby 
person down, right? And then she just never moves. Like you can go and come back and she's relatively in the same place, right? That was a wonderful, glorious time that we radically took for granted, okay? Because now she is into everything. And so we have two of them that are constantly going in separate directions. And so if you guys know that have ever like gotten into this like stage of parenting, um, there are like cabinets you didn't even know like could be opened. Like where did that cleaner get? And why is it in her mouth, right? Like all of this is like, I can't believe she is into anything. Like we call her our lady of perpetual destruction. That is what Artie's name is. Like she's always destroying something, always on the move. And so uh, this kind of hit the point where me and Cal realized like, man, we got to step up the game uh, a couple months ago. A couple of months ago, uh, we, we were here at, at church. It was a Sunday. And uh, back before Kel and I were parents, um, I, I say all the time that we were experts at parenting before we actually became parents. Uh, anybody can relate to that, right? Uh, and so we were like, oh, when we have children, our children will never be those children that were let loose out of kids' church and just run amok in the Lord's house, running and, and screaming and all and on the pews and stuff. That's not how that works. When we're parents, we will lead our children, single-file line, hand-holding, out of children's church, bring them to the lobby and say, stay here. And we'll be able to have adult conversations. And then when we're ready to leave, we'll pick them up where we left them. Now, I think last Sunday, you guys probably saw Cohen like dancing on the piano and like Arden's like ripping stuff out of like stage boxes. Like it's madness, right? But we were having a conversation, so it was okay, right? Like we are in that moment where they just are into everything. And so uh, a few months ago, we were there, and, and Cohen was, was, I told him, like, hey, you can kind of stay here, man. And, and he came up, and he said, can I stay with Bryson, Doug's youngest son? And I'm like, well, I mean, if you're going to go around with a preacher's kid, what harm could happen, right? Two preachers get together, like, that's just, like, the dream. Like, nothing wrong can, go, can happen. So I'm like, absolutely, as long as you stay with Bryson, you, you can do whatever you need to do. And so he's, and they're hanging out and, you know, doing stuff and whatever. And I'm, I've got Artie, and me and Kel are talking to some of our students or whatever, and my church starts to clear out, and after a while, like, people start to leave, and we realize, like, we're some of the last people here. And so I look around, you know, looking for Cohen and Bryson, and I go, Cal, have you, have you seen Co? Uh, no, I thought he was with you. Well, technically, but I also, like, told him to stay with Bryson. She was like, what? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I saw with Bryson, and I said, well, I, I don't know. I'll, I'll go look. And so I come back into the auditorium. Lights are off. And I was like, okay, like, buddy, if you're hiding, like, under a chair, this is not funny, right? And so he, I'm looking, and he's, he's nowhere to be found. Okay, I'm getting a little... A little worried, and Kel has swept all of the nurseries and, and, and thing and, and lobby, and he's not out there. Like, oh gosh, okay. Um, looked in the kid's wing, he's not there. What in the world? Why would he do this, right? And so then I'm like, okay, we're starting to freak out a little bit, and so I'm like, okay, I'm, I'll go to the parking lot. All right, maybe Jonathan found him and tased him, and he's got him in a patrol car. Right, like sheepdog, you know, take that punk. Like, you know, he can tell it to the judge. And I was just like, oh, maybe he found him. And I get out there, like nothing. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I can see the newspaper now. Like, local youth pastor loses child for doing his job. And I'm like, no, no, I don't want that. And so finally, we're, we're walking to the parking lot. We're screaming his name. Like, me and Cal are losing it. And all of a sudden, Ethan, Doug's middle child, walks up and goes. Are you looking for Bryson and Cohen? I go, yes, yes I am. And he goes, oh, they're over here in the van. They're just playing video games. So I walked over, slid the door open to the van, and there he is, sitting there with Bryson, playing video games. He just looks at me and goes, hey, Dad. Oh, hi, bud. Where have you been? 
He goes, you told me to stay with Bryson. I'm like, you're kind of right. I did not put the addendum in the building, uh, I guess, which was my bad as a father. So I take him out. I'm like, all right, fine. Like, and so as we're walking, I go, okay, buddy, like, let's have this conversation here. You can't go somewhere and not tell someone where you're going. Like, someone has to know where you are. And is this by fate, about the same week, a national story broke about a woman in kind of a similar predicament named Amanda Eller. If you guys follow the story of Amanda Eller, um, she was a physical therapist and a yoga coach in Hawaii. Um, and a few months ago, she decided to go on a run through one of the forests. And so she gets, you know, she's used to doing this all the time. And so she parks there in one of the parking lots there in one of the, in the, on the forest trail and leaves her cell phone there and her water. She's like, I'm going to be back. I'm literally going to do like, you know, two miles. So I'm just going to kind of run, turn around, come back. And she's very active. She's like, this will take 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Like, I'm going to be all right. I can leave everything here. I don't want to be distracted, weighed down. I'll be right back. While she gets into the woods a little bit, her pace has to kind of slow because, as Amanda tells it, there had been a windstorm that had kind of pushed a lot of limbs down on the kind of trail. And so her run kind of comes into a jog at first and then slows down to kind of a, you know, a, a, a speedy walk as she navigates her way through the sticks and the limbs. And it takes a little bit longer than she thought. And so she's a little more tired than she thought she would be after getting through all this. And so she decides, you know what, I'm just going to sit down here. I'll rest up, I'll meditate a little bit, kind of get my heart rate down, very, very yoga, right, center myself, and then I'll get up and I'll go back. So Amanda sits down next to a tree for a few minutes, resets herself and relaxes and calms down and stands back up and starts walking in the direction that she believes her car is. She walks a little bit, but then notices none of this looks familiar. She turns back around goes back to the same place where she had stopped and goes, okay, okay, okay. I must have just stood up, you know, in a different direction or something like that. So, okay, I, I, think it's, I think it's this way. And so she starts walking down that path. And once again, she realizes that doesn't look familiar and goes back and finally goes, this is it. This is, this is totally the way and commits. And what Amanda would tell you later is that she then committed to a trail that led her completely in the wrong direction. So Amanda was lost. Without a cell phone, without water, finds herself lost in the middle of a thick Hawaiian forest. Her family finds her car parked there in the parking lot, cell phone still there, and assumes the worst. Calls the authorities, calls the search parties to send them out to find Amanda, and it becomes national news. We got to find Amanda. They keep looking, keep looking, but they look, and as days turn into weeks, Turned to 17 days, no one has found Amanda. If you've read anything about missing persons cases after a couple of days, your odds get pretty low. So the morale of her family and of the search party was pretty much like we're, we're probably not looking for Amanda alive at this point. So imagine the joy and exuberance when a helicopter pilot searching and scanning all the trees, spots something he thinks might be a person waving them down. He tells the helicopter to to do another round and realizes it is Amanda. After 17 days, they find Amanda very, very malnourished. She had lost several, several pounds, um, sunburned, 
with, with skin infections because she wasn't able to, to take care of it. She has a broken bone in her foot from a point where she had fallen off kind of a, a, a ridge there. She'd lost her shoes while having them dried when a flood came through and washed them away. Here she was, though, alive. She'd found berries and some creek water that she hoped was clean enough. And here she was. The news erupted with, wow, what an amazing story. She survived. This is unlike anything we've ever heard. I mean, it's all over, all, everything. Everyone's celebrating. We found Amanda. Thank you to all the people that had helped look. So a few weeks go by, and Amanda is brought back up to health, and you can see as she sits there in her press conference, like her face is, is, is filled back out, and she looks like herself again, still in a boot, though, where her, her foot was broken. And she tells her story, what struck me is so critical. She told her story. She pauses in the middle of telling her story to the news and says, but I'd like to apologize. I'd like to apologize to my family and to all the people who came looking for me, the people I put in harm's way as they searched for me, all of the search party that had time away from their family to come look for me. I should have brought my cell phone with me. I should have told someone where I was going. And here's the question I want, I believe, for the power of the Spirit today to submit to all of us, is when your life gets lost, when your life goes off a track that you never thought it would be, when your life starts to turn and something happens and you don't know where you're going to go, who knows where you are? Who in your life is close enough to you that they know to send the choppers, to send the rescue squad, to come and knock on your door with a hot meal, who knows where you are when your life gets at its darkest. So what I want to do is I want to kind of look at the story of David. Because David, in the story that we just read and a little bit before it, is in a crazy dark place. One of the darkest of his entire life where everything seems against him. And what I want to kind of zero in on is where does David go? Who are the people in his circle he runs to first? So here's kind of the backstory of the story we just read. So uh, you just, we just read in First uh, Samuel 20 uh, that David comes to Jonathan and goes, your dad's trying to kill me. So if you back up one chapter into 1 Samuel 19, it is so awesome. Like, this is one of my favorite chapters of all the Bible. It has so many things that happen. Uh, so David is, if you guys remember um, Saul, King Saul is, the, is the, the king at the time. And the Bible says that he is stricken by this, like, this spirit, this evil, trembling, uh, or troubling spirit in his soul. And we don't really know what that means. A lot of people think that maybe that was just like a gripping depression or like a, or an anxiety or a rage or, or whatever. The Bible says that he would like walk through his house just raving at, at things, like just a troubled, troubled human being. So you can imagine that the advisors are looking at him going like, we cannot have a king like this. Like people are coming from other countries and they're seeing him like sitting on his throne, like yelling at the walls. This ain't working. Like we, we got to do something. So one of them suggests, well, well, well music. Let's, let's do that. Let's hire somebody to come in, and we'll, he'll play for them. And that person is David, the giant slayer, right, the one who had been anointed king years before. So they bring in David, and David would sit next to Saul and play on his harp. I assume Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, all right, and just like to calm him down. And so you can almost hear as David plays this beautiful music, this worship, right, that Saul's heart just kind of starts to soften. He starts to calm down. Amazing moment of just speaking life into him. And that happened for a while. 
But it all kind of came crumbling down when Saul, on a walk one day, overhears a song that people in his kingdom have begun to sing. He walks through the streets, and he hears a group of women singing, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. And Saul hears that. He says, so I'm a joke. So all my people think that he's really the king, and I'm nothing. So he goes back to his palace and he sits back down and you can almost imagine the awkwardness of the scene, knowing what we know, as David walks in and goes, hey, Saul, what's going on, man? Okay, so same set list as yesterday. Here we go. And Saul is sitting there boiling with rage. So what scripture says is as David begins to play, Saul reaches for a spear, a spear, and decides, <laughs> a spear thing, a spear, and decides to throw it at David, intending to pin him against the wall, scripture says. David jumps out of the way, stunned, and runs as fast as he can to get out of his presence. So where does David run that the, now that the king of his entire country wants to kill him? Like, let that sink in. The king of his entire country and all of the people that serve him are now out to kill him. David's life has taken a pretty dark turn. So the first person that David runs to is actually not Jonathan that we just read. This is actually the third person he runs to. The first person he runs to is his wife, Michal, who is actually Saul's daughter. Awkward, right? So he comes home and goes, your dad's trying to kill me. I know he's a little intimidating. No, no, he's literally trying to kill me. He threw a spear at me. Oh, okay, point taken. So she brings him in, and Michal says, okay, I've got a plan to get you out of here. Because I know daddy, daddy's going to send some stormtroopers. <laughs> Sorry, I just saw Star Wars. Uh, so he's going to send some, some bad guys, some soldiers, to come and get you, right? And so she's like, okay, I've got something to do. Like, I'll, we'll figure this out. So McCall has this idea. You're going to sneak out the back window, and I'm going to take your bed, put some pillows in it, and some goat hair at the top. So it looks like yours right there. And that's going to be you, and I'll tell him that you're asleep. So David says, you know, thank you, you know, I love you, and then goes. So then, soldiers, here they come. Hi, uh, Princess McCall, hi. Uh, your dad sent us. Uh, we have to get your husband. Oh, he's, uh, he's sleeping. See, like you can see, he's, he's, he's asleep. But I'll tell him that daddy came by. Uh, okay, uh, thank you. They go back to Saul. Uh, your daughter said he's asleep. Saul says, I don't care. Go get the bed and bring him here so I can kill him in his sleep, which is so sadistic, right? So there, the soldiers come back like, hi, princess, sorry, uh, new orders. We got to come in and we got to take the bed. He's like, okay, fine, what daddy says. So the soldiers come in and lift the bed and are marching out the door to take him to Saul. And I don't know what happened where they realized it, like if like the goat hair fell off and they're like, oh, David, where's our toupee? And they're like, oh, never mind, it's a pillow, right? Like, well, I don't know, however that happened. So they set it down, and they go to Saul, and they're like, he tricked us, man. And he's like, my own daughter, right? He tricked us, got away. So then David ran to McCall. He then runs to Samuel, like his spiritual advisor, his mentor, the guy that had anointed him king those years ago. He goes to Samuel and says the same thing. Saul's trying to kill me. Uh, what do I do? Samuel says, I got this. You're safe with me. So word gets back to Saul and says, David is hiding with Samuel. So Saul says, go get him. Sends a whole bunch of guys. I love this part of the story. It's so cool. So all of these soldiers marching, right, they're like, Samuel and David, we're coming to. And before they can, like, it, like finish their sentence, the Bible says they just start prophesying. Like, you're coming to be, God is amazing. We love him. Thank you, God, for your mercies that never fail. Like, they just start prophesying. So then they fall on the ground, they're prophesying. 
That gets back to Saul. He goes, okay, send more troops, ones that aren't as spiritual, I guess. So then they go, all right. Samuel and David, we're here too. God is so good. We love you. Right? And they fall down. They prophesy. Three times Saul sends guys, and each time they just fall down on the ground and prophesy. So boss, right? So then Saul himself goes, well, fine. I'll go. These guys are incompetent. I'll get it. Saul rides up, and the same thing happens to him. Falls on the ground and starts prophesying and never gets to even touch David. So cool. The protection that God had over him. So finally, David flees to Jonathan, who we just read, his best friend, and tells him, your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan kind of questions a little bit, are you sure? Like, I think I would have figured that out. Like, I don't know. I don't think that's right. Previously, his dad had said, oh, no, I'm not trying to kill him. Jonathan believed him. So they come up with an idea. He said, okay, I'll prove it to you. So tonight, we start this festival. I'm always supposed to go, but I'm not going to go today. And you'll sit by dad, and, or sit by like he saw, and when he asks, tell him I'm away. So Jonathan goes, he sits there at the feast table, Saul is there, and he notices that David's seat is empty. But he doesn't say anything for the first night. Thinks, okay, maybe he had something come up. The second night happens, David's seat is still empty. He looks at Jonathan and says, where's David? So Jonathan hears the moment. He says, well, Dad, uh, he had to go. He had to go to Bethlehem for a family thing, and, but he'll be back, I think, eventually. And you would think that that was a logical explanation that King Saul would be like, okay. Instead, King Saul rages into this furious, starts cursing his own son, and then grabs a spear and tries to kill his own son by throwing it at him. Jonathan obviously leaves and runs back to David and says, you're right, he's insane, he's trying to kill you, you got to go. So here's what I love about this overarching story of David and the places he went, is that when David's life got dark, when David's life got confusing, when David didn't really know how to navigate what was going on, he went to his circle of people. But I think that there's a very key thing about all of the three that he went to, is number one, they were the right people, and they also had the right spirit. So when zero went on the right people, this is what we just read, um, Samuel 20, verse 4. It says, tell me what I can do to help you. I love that that's Jonathan's response is, what do you need, bud? I got you. Because here's the thing. More than almost anything in your life, the people in your life will determine the outcome of your life. The people in your circles will determine where you end up. So here's, I want to do this. Let's look at the three people that David runs to and kind of mirror those with people in our life. So the first person that David runs to when his world falls apart is his spouse. Runs to her and says, you've got to help me. And here's the question that I think is beg, that, that begs to be asked in this morning is, is that the person that you run to? For those of us who are married in this room, is your spouse the person that when your world falls apart, your first reaction is to, I've got to speak up and tell them? And when you say that out loud, it's like, well, of course. I mean, obviously. But then when we look a little deeper, I think so many of us in this room, myself included, can say, I struggled with some things that my wife did not know about. I struggled with some doubts and some fears and some struggles and some things that I didn't feel like I had the freedom or the liberty or the ability 
to come before the person that God gave me as my help me to say, I need help with this. Will you pray with me? Well, Blake, here's the thing. He never wants to talk. He always just wants to watch his little football thing with the club, and I, don't, I, I can't stand it. Every time I try to say something serious, he's always just like, football, football, football. I can never get through to him. What I would submit is, but that's his purpose. God has placed him in your life for those moments, not to just be a physical helper or an or emotional you know, punching bag, but to be a spiritual helpmeet. Blake, here's the deal, man. I, I, it takes me so long to get my, my emotions out. Like, I'm not really, like, you know, I didn't really grow up with that. Like, my dad was kind of a, you know, strict guy, and so I, I you know, it takes me a while to get my, my feelings out, and by the time I do, she's already on Instagram, and so she doesn't hear anything. What I would submit to you is, but that's her purpose in this marriage is that we together are spiritually helping one another. We're having those conversations of, does, the question that wrecked me was, does your, does your spouse know the deepest places of your heart? For the first few years of my marriage and many times after that, I'd have to say, no. For one reason or another, we just haven't connected with that or I've, Dropped the ball and I haven't told her. Or she has something and she hasn't told me and we're disconnected. And what I would say is maybe today we need to have a moment of, you know what, I need to be intentional about making my spouse and giving my spouse the space to be that person. Maybe some of you need to say, hey, you know what, on Thursday night, rather than the, 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 the binging of the show that we usually do when the kids go to bed, we're going to sit down with some sweet tea and we're just going to talk. And it may just be about nothing, or some of the things that are deep in my soul might start to come out. Imagine how our marriages could look different if when our world falls apart, we knew that our spouse was walking with God, was speaking life into us, and we have a space to say, I need you to pray with me because I don't know what to do. So David goes to McCall, but he also goes to Samuel, his spiritual mentor. And what I would ask us all in this room is, do we have someone in our life that we would say, when my life is broken, I run to this spiritual advisor? Not the friend that makes me feel good. Not the friend that always knows the right things to say. Not the friend that's more successful than me and can give me advice on how to get my business there. No, no, no. I mean a spiritual person who says, have we talked to God about this? Here's my experience with the Lord. You know what? Jesus has really done this in my life. I think you'll do it in yours. Do we have someone that we run to to say, this is my mentor? Maybe that's a pastor or your parents or somebody in your life that was instrumental in, in, in drawing you closer to the walk of Jesus. Are they on the list of people that you run to? Do they know where you are when your world gets shaky? And lastly, Jonathan, a friend. Are the friends that we surround ourselves with the kind of people that when you come to them, they say, Tell me what I can do. What can I do? Are they the kind of friends of people that are going to point you to Jesus? Or are they ones that are going to make it about themselves? Or make it about something else? Maybe we need to ask, why do we have those friends in the, in the first place? Maybe we look at our circle and we say, this person has radically changed my life for Jesus. This person... Well, this person's kind of here because I think they could probably get me further in my job, so I'm just kind of friends with them. 
And this person, well, <laughs> I really feel good about myself when I hang out with them because their life's kind of a mess. And this person in my friend group, I, I, we just kind of tolerate each other because, like, she has this membership to a thing that I really like, and so we just kind of go with them. And this one, I mean, their kids are cool, but, ugh. And we start to look at all of these friendships, and we think, well, man, why are these friendships here? So um, if you've ever been to the Baxter house, uh, uh, a lot of you uh, TSM parents and Temple Kids parents and some other people have been. And uh, this is what you would see typically um, for the last five years if you, would walk, if you would come to the Baxter house is our yard and this massive tree, uh, very luscious uh, tree here. Um, I hate this tree with all of my being. I absolutely hate it. Um, and you can see, like, oh, no, it gets nice to shade, and Cohen will want to climb it. No, no, no. It is a terrible, terrible tree. It's my arch nemesis, okay? So here's why. So you can't really see, but underneath it, um, there is absolute dirt, okay? There's, like, little, little bits of grass here, but, like, it kills everything. I've put grass seed down. I've put sod down. I've done mulch, fertilizer, everything. It will not grow. It kills everything. I hate this tree. I can't stand it. Well, finally, my arch nemesis tree decided to do one final blow a couple of months ago. So Cohen, on a regular Saturday, goes, and I think he accidentally flushed a wipe, single solitary wipe, down the toilet. And what happened next was everything came back up. And I mean everything, like the nastiness from weeks past all came back into my sink and into our showers and into our tubs and into our toilets. Everything backed up. Our house smelled like a dump. It was disgusting. So I freak out because I didn't know this was a thing. Somebody please help me. So I call a plumber, and he comes out, and he's just like, oh, I think you've got like a block in your pipe out to the sewer. And I'm like, well, please get it out because this is gross. So he runs this thing and, like, kind of opens it up or whatever and all the f- stuff, thank God, flushes back through. Well, then I go, well, what is causing this? He goes, well, I have an, I- I have an idea, but I'm going to run a camera. So he runs the camera down. And sure enough, this tree had gotten all of its little roots into our sewer line and had blocked it all up. And so this tree, as luscious and beautiful as it was, was feeding off of filth. Like, this is why it was so lush. Like, it was just feeding off of all sorts of stuff, okay? So the tree had to go. And I am so, like, sadistically happy to show you this picture. This is what my house looks like today. Sawdust. It is gone. I hate that stupid tree, and I got the final word, right? So here he is. He's gone, and I planted his replacement far away from the pipe, and he's a lot littler, right? So, I mean, oh, I I can't stand it. And as I, we had basically had to, like, dig down all the way, and so we opened up the pipe, and there was this, like, massive just root ball that had all gone in it. And, man, I was just like, oh, I, I had to do all this work and all this stuff to get this tree out of here that was such a problem. And what I started to think about is, man, I wonder how many of my relationships on the outside, they look so healthy. People look at it and go, wow, like, you guys are great friends. It's so cool how you guys always hang together. But the root system is toxic. It's burrowed into something that God never intended it to be. And so maybe when you look at some of your friendships and you say, I only have this person around because it makes me feel better. I only have this person around because they have something I want. I only have this person around because I kind of have to out of obligation. Maybe when you look at this, you look like, and like me, you say, 
man, God, you've given me the right people in my life, but I've tried to put in the wrong people into my closest circles. I've tried to put people who have no business speaking into my life. I've tried to jam them in to my closest circles. And God's saying, I never intended that. God's saying, the circles that I've given you, the people I've placed in your life, are the people that point you to me. The people that are closest to you, that speak into your life, can't have roots in toxicity. They have to have roots in the word of God. So with David, I think he, he had the right people. And you can have the right people all day long. You can have the people that go to church or the successful business people or the people that were Sunday school leaders or whatever in your, in your life. But if they don't have the right spirit, it won't help. When your life is turned upside down, if you have the right people, you have to have the right spirit. And those people have to write that right spirit as well. This is First Samuel of 20, verse 42. At last, Jonathan said to David, go in peace, for we've sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. Watch this. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. Then David left and Jonathan returned to the town. I love that Jonathan is a friend that points David to God. In this moment, when David is at his lowest, David has every right to be able to say, why is this happening to me? Why me? Why is everyone against me? Why am I having to run away from all of these things? Why am I constantly being chased after guys with swords and spears and arrows? Why me? Why does my life look like this? And I love that we get a glimpse of David has a friend who says, you know what? God's not surprised by any of this. But but Jonathan, I'm having to flee from my home. God's not surprised. I love that Jonathan is a friend that says, you know what? God's been with us. God has given us each other as a relationship. So God is in all of us. God is not surprised. God is not off the throne. God is doing something in your life. The same God that anointed you king is going to bring you through this. The same God that killed that giant on your, with, with, with the stone that you had, hey, he's going to get you through this. He's the same God. Do our friends, the ones that we go to, do they point us to God in those moments. And then when we turn that question on ourselves, when our friends come to us, is our first reaction to go, oh, it's going to be okay. No negativity can come in 2020. No, no, it's okay. I, I read this one thing that it, it happens. It's okay. It's fine. I read a WebMD article that's super low chance it'll happen. Or instead, do we speak to our friends and do our friends speak to us in the spirit of God to say, he's got this. And open-handedly, we wait on him to move. I love that David, as we have record of, receives this. He doesn't seem to argue here, and later on he goes to follow and God, follow God through all of this. I feel like in this moment, I might have been tempted to say, nah, you know what? God apparently is, like, really not on my side today. Like, I know that you're, like, Jonathan, I appreciate you saying that, but I really don't want to talk about God right now. Have you seen my life? Instead, David receives that word. So I would say to you, when your friend that God has placed in your life, when your mentor, when your spouse says, hey, can we go to God with this? Hey, God has got this. Hey, I believe that there's a promise here that God is fulfilling. Do we say, 
I receive that. Rather than arguing, rather than putting it back on us, do we say, you know what? You're right. Let's pray together. Um, a couple days ago, actually, two days ago, um, we, uh, the TSM and uh, some of our, uh, oh, I said pray together. Did you bow? Sorry. <laughs> was that, was that, a, that was a false thing. Sorry. Um, so our TSM uh, students and uh, a couple of our leaders uh, went to our winter retreat um, in Broken Bow, Oklahoma. And uh, if you guys don't know what Broken uh, or what Broken Bow is, it's in a place in Oklahoma. Uh, if you don't know what winter retreat is, um, it is basically just a time uh, for our leaders and our TSM students, our, G- our uh, senior high, to kind of get away and just connect with each other, kind of get away from the busyness and the distractions and really plug into what God has for us. Um, so if you looked at the schedule uh, of winter retreat, it's very spacious, very open. Um, for a, for a uh, student event, you would think, what? Like, what do you do with all this time? Um, and it's intentional to, to be. We want you to, to relax. We want you to be at peace. We want you to have moments where we can have conversations. And So to get the uh, last night we were there, um, we're in this cabin, and there's a, if you can kind of imagine, we're all in a giant circle. We had 21 students and four leaders there, and um, it's a huge circle of, of students, and uh, there's a fire lit over here. We're in the cabin. And me and Jonathan Purcell, had, uh, one of our TSM leaders and my uh, brother-in-law, had, had kind of bounced back and forth with some of our kind of sessions and talks that we'd done. And our theme that we decided was, was, was walls. Um, that there are sometimes walls that you build in your heart around certain things. There's sometimes walls that God intends you to, to keep up, your defenses. And So the final session there, we're all around the fire at night. And, and I said, here's the deal. I believe the enemy loves to build walls through your heart. And I had a whole bunch of students just kind of stare at me. <laughs> I go, okay, let me, let me break it down. Let me, let me make this illustration here. So I told them this story. I told them that uh, Kel and I, uh, a few years ago, had gone to Uganda. And um, we had worked in an orphanage in a school there and uh, with a bunch of t- a team. And the team kind of had to leave a little bit early. And so we were uh, left. And uh, the last night, um, uh, kind of the afternoon, the, uh, the missionary, his name is Tony, comes to us and says, okay, i got to take you guys to the airport you know, for tomorrow morning. But I'm going to go ahead and take you into the city today. And we're going to stay at this super awesome place. And I was like, oh, Nice, that's just great. So me and Kel like packing our stuff, right? We're ready. Like, I want to see, like, what does the Ugandan Ritz look like? This is going to be so awesome. So we get in and pack up our car and everything, and we start driving, and we get closer to the town that, that the airport is in, and all of a sudden, Tony starts making some weird turns. Well, the hotels, I believe, would have been that direction, and keeps turning and turning, and eventually, he turns into a zoo. And he kind of looks at us like, ah, ah, and we're like, ah. Why are, why are, I mean, this is great, but it's kind of late to like go visit the zoo, right? He goes, no, 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 no. You're not going to believe this. There are rooms, little like hut things that you can rent in the zoo. And we're like, wow. Gee, that sounds fun. So he's like, no, you're going to love it. So he drives us up and there they are. Sure enough, these little huts and they have little, you know, beds in them with mosquito nets and stuff and pulls up and we put our stuff out. It's pretty cool. You're like, that's roof and all that stuff. And before he leaves, he goes, no way. It's not a true experience until you get to see what animals are sleeping around you. And I'm like, please don't. I really don't need to know. He goes, no, no, no. You're going to love this. 
So he hops in the van and he drives us around and literally, I mean, like a football field away is the lion habitat and the wall is, you know, not nearly high enough. And there they are just waiting. They're like, oh, you're the new people in the hotel room. We'll be coming to see you later. Right. Like, oh, wow, that's really scary. And we keep going. There's monkeys everywhere. They're just like running around like squirrels. Um, So you're just kind of having to like kick them out of the way to, to walk anywhere. And he takes us to one final place that's really close to our our hut there. And it's the rhino habitat. And so, and I say habitat, so I look, and the rhino's just out there. He's huge, humongous, like this giant, like, you know, piercing horn thing, just ready to impale the person at any moment. And he's there in his little habitat, and I, I look at him, like, like, really close, and there's no fence. I'm like, am I going crazy, or is there, like, nothing between me and him? And Tony goes, oh, you got to look down there. And down at the bottom of, like, his wall is literally this little rock thing that's about this tall. I said, Tony, that ain't a wall, dude. That's a speed bump. Like, this rhino going to take somebody out. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, interesting fact about rhinos is they won't jump or step over anything they can't see the other side of. So this tiny little wall that any of us would be able to just hop over kept this rhino from his freedom. And I told the students that at winter retreat, and they're like, where are you going with this? And I said, here's the deal. I believe the enemy loves to build walls around places in our hearts that the Spirit of God never intended us to be captive to. I believe that there are parts in our heart that the enemy says, this wall right here, even though the Spirit of God could burst through that with a whisper, this wall right here is going to keep you from freedom because you can never share this part of your heart with anybody. This part of your heart where something was done to you that you had no control over, you can't share that with anybody. This part of your heart over here where you don't know exactly how you became like this and the mistake you made in, in the past, but right here you better keep that locked up behind my wall because if anyone else finds out, they'll never love you the same. And I looked at our students, and I said, here's the deal. Every single one of us has allowed the enemy to build walls around our heart. Walls that are never intended to be, that were never intended to be kept behind. I said, right now, let's break them down. Together. So one by one, that circle of students, we were around and we said something that we hadn't told others. We said, if you really knew me, then you would know. And we watched the Spirit of God break down walls of parts of our hearts that other people hadn't seen, that were meant to be shared with others. And here's the thing. The most shocking part of that was not, oh, wow, there's some some of our students that aren't really super vulnerable and they were talking. That wasn't the most shocking part. The most shocking part to me, and obviously God was moving, like that was amazing, but that, the weirdest part to me, I think, was as a student over here was saying something they felt they could never share, tearing down a wall in their heart, two over here on the other side went, right? Same. Another one would go, and one over here would be like, exactly, right? One would say, I have such a fear 
of what's going to happen in my life. And three others would go, me too. One over here would say, I don't know if I can be loved because what I've seen at my home and what's happened to me, I don't know what I'm looking for. I don't know how I can love well. And others would say, me too. Same. Me too. Yes, me too. And over here, somebody would say, I just, I feel like I always am gripped by anxiety because I don't know how, where my first step is. I don't know what my family is going to do with all of this. And others would say, me too. Yes, me too. And here's the deal. Satan hated that. Hated it. But Jesus loved it. Because all over that room, community had started. All over that room, students who felt they were all alone did not feel alone anymore. Here's what I believe the Spirit of God is trying to help us understand in this room. We are not supposed to do this alone. We've never intended to be alone. God says, I placed people in your life close to you, and yet you still want to be this lone wolf thing? You're killing yourself. You're getting lost. Who's going to come send the helicopters to you? You're not supposed to do this alone. So maybe in this room today, some of us have some walls around parts of our heart that we can never let anybody inside. Because how could anybody love me after I say this? My wife would never understand that struggle. My husband couldn't understand the pain I've gone through. My kids will never understand this worry that I have. Here's what I believe. I believe God says today in our community, together in our circle of people that God has put us together with, he's saying, break them down. Break them down. Let's do this together.